I learned that managing up is underrated and managing down is overrated. The people that do really well in any business are able to manage up to their bosses. So it's like, what does my boss need? He or she is told that they want to bring in more action movies, more rom-coms, more XYZ PDQ. If you're too busy managing down to your assistant, to your development executives, to whoever it is, and you're saying, hey, you know, we need to be thinking about this, and uh, I thought you did a good job writing those notes, and, and that most of the time, the people that tend to do really well are, are better at managing up. I mean, they're managing up to their boss saying, that's what you want, and they spend the entire day, week, month, year, finding that project. Welcome to Mentors on the Mic. I'm your host, Michelle Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in film, television, off-Broadway, and commercials. Every Monday, I'll bring you an incredible mentor in the entertainment industry, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. Thanks for listening, and let the episode begin. Boy, do I have a mentor for you guys this week. I am so grateful and happy to introduce you guys to Damon Lee. Damon is the CEO and founder of Deacon Entertainment. He has produced so many amazing projects. He has the idea for and produced Obsessed with, Obsessed with Idris Ilba and Beyonce. He's also executive produced This Christmas with Idris Ilba, Loretta Devine, Chris Brown, Regina King. Uh, such a great film. And he won a 2011 NAACP Image Award for Sins of the Mother on Lifetime and has worked with Taraji P. Henson. And, all, you know, his journey is actually so phenomenal. I mean, he has worked with some of the most incredible directors and producers in entertainment and including, you know, John Singleton, responsible for Boys in the Hood, Four Brothers, Shaft. Um, he was a VP of production for legendary action producer Joel Silver, who's, you know, he was actively involved, Damon, in the, the Matrix, the conspiracy theory. And, you know, there's just so many wonderful stories that Damon shared with us just from these mentors, from his experiences, just such great advice. And the interview itself took so much longer than I normally give interviews. Um, I was so grateful for his time. But also just, you know, I think we went to about an hour and 40 minutes, and it was very difficult, as you could see from the length of this episode, to cut anything. So I really just compiled some edits, some clips, and I'm going to probably release them either as a bonus episode or on the Facebook group this week. So keep an eye out for that because those are so good, too. And uh, I want to give a, a special thank you to Stan Brooks for recommending Damon to us. He, if you haven't listened to his episode, episode one. Stan Brooks is still one of our most popular episodes. And uh, without further ado, welcome, Damon Lee. Hello, how are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. So I always like to start with just the simple question. How did you start in the entertainment industry? You know, I was thinking about that last night. And I guess I got my start from John Singleton. So I went to the, to the USC Peter Stark Producing Program. Pretty, and, very competitive program, right? Yeah, it's a very p competitive program. And my class was, uh, was extremely competitive with, mm. with each other. There was uh, an incident where someone threw a chair at somebody else that might have been me. There was an incident where oh a girl God. stood up and told another guy 
that's rape culture. And he said, yeah, what do you think about that? By the way, this was the 90s. And then oh. the two of them almost went to fit to, to fighting. Wow. But, but what happens is that sort of steel sharpening steel really worked. And a lot of our the people that I went to uh, grad school with have done quite well since then. And so we were we were a pretty uh, combustible uh, group of group of men and women. And so my start, let's see. Yes. John Singleton gave me my start. He had come off of Poetic Justice and he was starting a movie called Higher Learning. Mm. And his development executive, Dwight Williams, was also an alum of the USC Peter Stark Producing mm. Program. And so I called him and I said, you know, hey, I'd love to work for you. And he said, great, come down. I interviewed. And he said, well, we can't pay you for the first three weeks. So why don't you come back? I said, no, 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 no. I'll just start. And, uh, you know, I, you know, hustle, like hustle. So I, I started and it was great because four weeks in, so I'd been working for pay for one of the four weeks. He got an email from the head of the studio saying, we looked through the budget. You're not supposed to have an assistant. But by then I had already been working for four weeks. Everybody knew me and they approved me. So I was Dwight Williams assistant on a movie called Higher Learning. And then I went on, they kept me on and I became um, director of development. Now, when I was working for John Singleton, he had come off of Boys in the Hood right. and Poetic Justice. He was one of the hottest directors in town. He was known to be a disruptor on every level. He would go into meetings where it was the board of directors at Columbia, and he would just walk in and say, I need this, or I need this, or why are you guys doing this? Just powerful. And he insisted, as a matter of fact, on having all black crews. And, wow. uh, and he would really wait for that to happen. And that's all I knew. So when I started um, producing, and there were times when I wanted to make sure I had a very diverse group of nice. uh, production. And I had learned a lot from him with that. But the other thing is, you know, he was making movies that were about the streets, yeah. about a certain level of socioeconomics and socioeconomic structure around those characters. And quite often that meant that he also needed some level of security. And so in his office, when you would go to speak to him, they would say, you know, you have to get past what was called the FOI, which is Fruit of Islam, who were mm -hmm. hired as his security guards. And we all knew he carried a gun. So there was one time I'd been working for, so Higher Learning was in pre-production. We had just gotten into our production offices and, you know, I really didn't have a whole lot of training other than I actually knew how to develop a script because mm -hmm. the Peter Stark producing program teaches you that. Right. But we hadn't really gone into production that much. And so we it was like the third day of official pre-production in the production offices. And and the night before, two things had happened. The day before, John had called and I said, higher learning, can I help you? And he said, uh, come on, man, you got to get it right. I was like, I'm sorry, what did I get wrong? He said, you answer the phone, production. You don't answer the phone, higher learning. I didn't know. Yeah. So I felt, I, but, I, but at the same time, I was always trying to be, you know, the best employee I could be. Right. And so I was mad at myself. I went home and I was talking to my brother who at the time was on a television show. He's an actor and oh. he was on a television show called uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Oh, that, that small one, that small one that uh, yeah, yeah, is yeah. being talked about right now, being rebooted maybe. That, oh, is it? Yeah, no. I know. So Tyra, and his, at the time, John Singleton was going out with Tyra Banks. And Tyra was guest starring on the she show. Was. Guest yes. On the show. And wow. so um, I told my brother, he said, well, you know, what do you, so tell me what you're doing for John Singleton. And I said, you know, this and this. And well, what's the script about? I said, well, higher learning is about this. You know, I told him a little bit about higher learning. And um, we all knew John was a very private person. In fact, John had his scripts numbered. 
So if wow. Michelle was going to be given a script, you were given script number three, and it had a big red three on every page. Wow. So if you photocopied it and gave it to somebody, you would know that three, hmm, Michelle, actually gave this script away. So the next day I get a call and they said, John wants to see you. So I run over there and I'm thinking, man, did I answer the phone the wrong way again? And there was like two or three other mistakes that I had made. I'm like, did I, did I not put this there or do this? And yeah. you know, did I miss a meeting between John and Singleton and my boss, Dwight Williams? I got there. I was sweating. I was, I was, you know, I was, I was trying to catch air. And, and John said, <laughs> what's wrong with you? And I said, I'm sorry, what did I do? He goes, no, why are you out of breath? I said, I ran over here and he chuckled and he sat down and as we sat down, I could see his gun. And, uh, and I was like, oh man, shit, what is this going to be about? And uh, he said, you know, and he rolled towards me and John had these very kind of thin, like he'd squint his eyes and they were just these thin slits almost. And he says, uh, he says, you know, if, if I can't trust you, I don't need you here. Do you understand that? And I was like, yeah, I, I understand that. And he said, uh, you've been talking about my script? I said, no, no. And to me, the answer was no, because the only person I talked to about his script was my, my, my brother. Which didn't, you know, yeah, that, in your head. That, to me, that's count. not talking about the script yeah. around town. And he said, yeah, well, uh, Tyra told me you told your brother about the script. I said, yeah, oh, shit. Yeah, I did that. And he said, I got to trust you, man. And then he looked at me and I think at that moment he could see in my eyes like that that wasn't what my intention was. Yeah. He could see that I was sweating. He could see that I could barely catch my breath. And he took up, he rolled, those, rolled, rolled his chair back a little bit. He says, I just need you to understand that trust is everything in this industry. And I said, I understand. And what I'm, what I'm really proud of is the fact, one, I, I really admire May John rest in peace, rest his soul. He was such a great mentor for me yeah. uh, and to me, and he was a good friend. But that uh, he was right. A lot of times it's about trust. You will hire the people that you trust, even if they're not as sort of competent as maybe someone else, but you yeah. know you can trust that they're going to get X, Y, and Z done yeah. and done in a way that is part of your vision on a mm -hmm. set. And then two, that by probably by the time production started six weeks later, I was in charge of the scripts. Wow. He, yeah. So he, I had the key to the script. So he would say, he would come to me only and say, not to my boss. He'd say, that's um, Melvin. Give him, uh, he's going to be number 15. So wow. I would go and print 15 red across all the scripts that he, all the pages he was going to get and give it to him. So it was great. I mean, um, wow. he, you know, there's a level of forgiveness there and um, second chance and second chance there that John was great about. And he was that way with all of his friends. Do you feel like you do not like do the same thing for, for people that work for you or under you or people that are on your teams or do you, you know, do you have second chances? Do you feel like you think trust is so valuable? Kind of like what he taught you. So I don't know if I've given second chances uh, yet, uh, but I can tell you that I, I, I have hired people that I've worked with before because I know that they're going to have my interest at heart on a set where yeah. it's about creativity. It's not, you know, creativity is subjective. You know, um, you're not, you're not, uh, you're not doing the plumbing in a house, which is important. And I'm not, it's not a, it's not a menial job to me. It's a, it's a, it's a great job, but there's only, there's a lot, most of the time there's only one way to plumb a house, if you will. Right. There's all sorts of ways to build your creative house and right. you need people to sort of sign on. And if you've worked with them before, they're not just going to sign on. They're going to be enthusiastic about your vision. And so I have done that before. And then the other thing I've done is I've hired people 
that uh, people of d- diverse from women, African-Americans, Asians, and I've hired a lot of white men too. Um, yeah. You know, this, my one story I have about that is that um, I was really proud of the fact that uh, I, so there, I had a script called Whisper and uh, there was no black characters. There was no characters that weren't white in the script. And so I went to the producers um, as a studio executive at the time I was working at MGM and I said, I'm going to um, create a couple of roles in here for African-Americans. Is that yeah. okay? And they said, yeah, if it makes sense. And there wasn't a lot of characters beyond the lead roles that had been already sort of monetized for their international value. Right. And so I, I ended up, I only was able to do it with one character that was a, a pretty big character. He was mm. an investigator in the movie and, and I, it ended up being uh, Dulé Hill. Oh. And so I was really oh, excited man. about it. And so, uh, so I, I, ca- I, I changed it to a black character. I cast Dulé Hill myself. Like they were like, whoever you want, Damon. Wow. So I cast Dulé Hill. I'm sitting on the set and I'm, and I'm waiting for Dulé Hill to, to, to walk on set. And I see this person standing in front of the camera and them setting lights up around this, this stand-in. And I was like, so why is that person standing there? I thought the next scene up was with Dulé. Oh, it is. I said, well, then that would be Dulé's stand-in. They go, yes. What's the problem? And I oh. said, and it was a, it was a UPM, or oh, I don't need to say her name, but yeah. let's call her Sandy. And I said, Sandy, I really like you, but we need a black stand-in for a black actor. And to be clear, people don't know, you know, the whole idea of a stand-in, there's a lot of ideas, way, reasons to use a stand-in, but right. one of them is to test the lighting. Yeah. And you have brown skin. If you have dark brown skin, of which Dulé Hill have, what Dulé Hill has, and I have, you need a certain sort of fill, uh, uh, you know, in the lighting. Uh, yes. And you know, so I'm and, and the Sandy kept saying to me, "It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter." Oh. And I was like, it, "It does matter, but it matters on a lot of levels." And so um, I had to turn to her and 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 uh, and I said, "Look, here's the deal. I like you, and if and if um, and uh, but if if tomorrow morning." There's not a black actor as a stand-in for Dulé, male or female. I don't care uh, if, it's, if it's a white actor. I'm going to find a way to fire you. And I said to her, I know that you're one of the, the company that hired you. You're one of their favorites and you're thought of as really good. So it's going to, it, I'm going to have to use all of my kind of chits to do it, but I will do it. And the next day there was a black actor there. And I remember calling John Singleton and telling him, and I was so proud to tell him. And to him, it was like, that's every day. That's what he, that's the disruptor he was every day. But for me, it was the first time I did it and I did it because I wanted to do it. And so I was, I was really proud of that. And I was really proud of John for mentoring me in that direction. Yeah. It's a great story, man. Oh, and Julie Hill, so good. Was this pre or post West Wing? Ah, good question. I was post West Wing. I'm pretty sure. So he, yeah. So it's high ticket. That's good. Um, But it's, I mean, I'm sure we could talk about this further, but it's like the same for like makeup, right? You know, you need to know, like a makeup artist needs to know how to do both people of color and people who are white. And if you don't, yeah, and I and feel that, like I, I talk to yeah. friends of mine who have that issue sometimes too, where they're like, they just don't have the makeup for me or they don't know what to do with my hair. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I would tell you that I did have that situation. I don't know if we talked about it before at all, but the the other one was I walked on set and I said, look, I, I've learned to pick my battles on set. And right. I, I said there was, we had cast Jill Scott in the lead role for this yeah. movie the week called Sins of the Mother. And so I just said, here's the deal. You guys, the, the Teamsters were known at that point in that area to be sort of racist. 
There were there was issues with the cars where the guy that they were using to, to get the picture vehicles was a little bit corrupt and everybody knew it. I said, I, I said, I've heard all these rumors and that's all fine. But I've got a black woman, Jill Scott, just coming off of uh, having a child. You know, she's going to be very nervous coming to set. I need her to have a safe place. Yeah. And the drive from the hotel to the set is one thing. But once you're on set and you're sitting there between scenes or before your first scene, she needs to be with yeah. people that I know she's going to feel comfortable with. It's not to say that you can't be comfortable with a group of white women nope. doing hair and makeup, but I need to guarantee that she's going to sit down and not feel like the person going through her hair doesn't understand her hair. So uh, that's going to be my one battle, which is I need it's a black yeah. woman to be hair and makeup. Uh, and I, I said, I said, and I, I would prefer to be a woman, quite frankly. So they were like, yeah, 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 yeah. And ultimately, on two different occasions, they were like, okay, we've got uh, three hair and makeup people downstairs for you to interview. And I said, are any of them black? No. Okay, well, tell me when someone's black down there, or I'm not going down. And I, they thought I was kidding. And they were like, came an hour later, like, you haven't interviewed any of them I, that I told you. I had to be that strict about it. Finally, they hired somebody. And, and everything went well. And it wasn't, you look, sometimes with, to be with diversity, you've got to go the extra yard. They had to get somebody in Toronto and fly them into Vancouver and, and you know, pay a little bit more money, but uh, it was worth it. It's worth it. That's great. Um, we can talk about this forever and we'll probably come back to this because this is all important. But st sort of keeping into what you were working for John Singleton at the time, how did you go or how many years did it take you to go from working kind of as unpaid and then an assistant to director of development. Oh, that was all within making higher learning. Wow. So I went from, uh, and I had a real, so I had a real skyrocket career for, for a yeah. long time and then everything, and then everything sort of like leveled off and there are pros and cons to that <laughs> for sure. But uh, I had, um, so we started higher learning. I was there for like the soft prep. I, I helped hire just about all the crew. Um, I saw a lot of them at John Singleton's funeral and we hadn't seen each other in, in, in decades. And so then- well, That's a big deal. That's a, that's a lot of responsibility to, to get all the heads. That's like production manager status. Yeah, yeah. And so what would happen is my, my boss, Dwight Williams, who's a great guy, would say, okay, here are people John likes to work with. Um, John needs to, you know, each play, each, like the production designer, there were like two or three that he liked to work with and they'd come in and they'd pitch what their mm. thoughts were about for higher learning. And then, um, and he'd pick one and it was great. And then, so by the time we finished higher learning, I was already reading scripts for Dwight and for John. And so I stayed on as a director of development. And from there I was hired, uh, I believe I was hired to work for Joel Silver, which was a whole nother can of, uh, of worms. But the, I think the biggest, the, the most difficult thing for me was when we talk about social inequality was the fact that you know, I didn't have a lot of money to be working for free or to be working for nothing. Uh, we're working for beans, if you will. And, you know, at that age, as we talk about, like as a mentor, I would say to people now, like, you just got to figure out your hustle. So when I worked for John, I was still getting, I was on a fellowship at USC, which was great. I don't take it for granted. I still want to say thank you to Elizabeth Dean Daly for, for giving it to me. But I didn't have the money to stay on the Columbia lot and have lunch. Right. So I would, I would literally get in my car and drive from Columbia pictures to USC, eat at USC and then drive back to Columbia pictures. Now the amount of gas that it took to do yeah, that and all that, that yeah. who, who knew, I didn't figure that out, but I just hustled hard for, for, for three or four years. And, 
you know, I didn't know how to get around. I, you know, I was a VP of production at MGM. I don't know, within five years, five or six years of being in Los Angeles. And I remember my boss at MGM, uh, Michael Nathanson, we were driving somewhere and I was driving him and he's like, and this was before GPS or Waze or anything else. And I didn't know how to get to the place. He's like, how do you not know how to get from maybe it was Century City to Brentwood? And it was because I hadn't pulled my, uh, I hadn't like literally gone outside very much. I was just hustling, reading scripts. My girlfriend at the time, we, we, when we go to Mammoth or to Big Bear to go skiing, I'd read, I'd read on the way up. Uh, you know, I'd read for three hours, then I'd drive, and then she would keep reading so I could get as many scripts done before mm. I got to the mountain. Then we'd ski for a couple hours, and I would leave early and continue reading scripts. Wow. It was just hustling hard for five or six years. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. So, so now you're director of development, right? No, and, now? Well, so, so, I'm, so I'm going through. Point. So I just kind of yeah. want to make sure yeah. that all so, those So I'm trying are... to figure that out. So, yeah. So I was at John Singleton's New Deal Productions. And then I think you might have my resume. I think I went I to, did I go to MGM after that? <laughs> I, so yeah, VP uh, at 1997 and 99. So yeah. I went to, I definitely went to MGM and okay. I worked for Michael Nathanson. And Great. you know, the, so uh, no, so here's how the actual order is, whether it's on my resume like this or not. I ended up at Silver Pictures after John Singleton. And I worked for, I worked for Joel Silver for maybe two years. I mean, Joel is a famous uh, yeller, screamer, angry, narcissistic guy. And it was hard because, so I found that the people that got along with Joel the best were people that had come from families, from dysfunctional families. Interesting. And uh, I was lucky enough to come from a family that my mom and dad, my dad passed away about 10 years ago, but they were very much in love until the day he died. And, uh, wow. and so I didn't understand how to sort of Maneuver, uh, maneuver um, through the sort of dysfunctional environment that then he created and the, and the people that were good at it were able to, to work through. And I'm not saying that everyone that worked for Joel Silver worked in it, what came from a dysfunctional family, right. no, you're not. but I found that those people were the most successful. And yeah. uh, so it was hard. It was also hard, you know, so jo jo Joel Silver has a, um, a plantation in South Carolina and uh, I'll never forget, he, he called me into his office one day and he said, uh, he said, so, all right, go over, tell me what the note is on that script, Damon. I don't know what it was. And it was, it, they were always very important movies though. And I, I don't mean just like important to him, like, it was like yeah, conspiracy like the theory. Yeah, yeah, Matrix and conspiracy theory and Lethal Weapon 4. Right. And, you know, so he was like, okay, you know, and so we'd go, we went over something. I don't know what it was. He said, all right, I need you to call me at the, uh, at the plantation at uh, tomorrow at nine. And, and I, I, don't, I know that there were two reasons I could not figure out what that meant. One, I, I had never said, I had never actually talked to someone at a plantation. I didn't know they still existed. And so it was made me really anxious and really nervous to even hear the word out loud. And then on top of it, I was then by being that nervous, I, I said, so what time is that? Because I, I, I don't know, I just couldn't figure out like, okay, well, that's the East Coast, it's South Carolina. Anytime they had brought up plantation around me, I just kind of, my ears would kind of like, like yeah. just go, I couldn't hear. So, I, I, so I, I just couldn't, I asked him, I said, so what time is that in, a, in what, do you want me to call you? If it's four o'clock there, and he goes, he goes, it's the East Coast, so it's three hours ahead. And he stops and he looks at me, he goes, what did your parents teach you? And it was, and he had, I, I'd like to say that he had no idea. So now you push two buttons. You have, without knowing, pushed a button about slavery and, be, and enslavement. 
by mentioning the plantation and asking me to be right. part of a plantation by calling you. That's what was in my mind. And now you're kind of, you're saying like, well, what did your parents teach you? So you're attacking the very, my cornerstone, right? right. Me. And I just turned and looked at him and I said, my parents, and I, and I looked at him and I could tell he could see in my eye, like say the wrong thing and I am going to grab you and hurt you. Yeah. And, uh, and he goes, no, 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 forget it. It's three hours ahead. All right, call me then. He, did, I mean, he, he definitely read me right because I was Good. like, please, man, please don't say anything about my parents. But, you know, it's one of the things is you talk about mentors and microphones, I think the name you, you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that what I had to do going to Hollywood was say to myself, here's the line that no one can cross. And then I yeah. always had to be able to move that line back, <laughs> meaning like take more shit and take more shit and take more shit. And if you're not willing to work outside your comfort zone, then don't go to Hollywood. Mm. So MGM, tell us a little bit more about that and then we'll go to the next one. So MGM was the, uh, so MGM was the best of times and the worst of times because I wasn't the executive that mm. I think that Michael Nathanson was hoping that I was going to be. And that's on, and that's on me. I had come up really quickly. I had, I've been a director of development for like a year. I'd worked for uh, Michael Nathanson. Oh no, I'd worked for Joel Silver for a couple yeah. of years. Um, but, I think that Michael was really patient with me and he said to me one day, he said, you know, um, we were in a meeting with a bunch of um, really seemingly smart guys, like with, you know, cool glasses and they had the, all these great terms about script development and why this antagonist didn't work and what the MacGuffin should have been and blah, 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 blah. And when we left uh, the meeting, he said, you know, come in my office. And he said, he said, you think that those guys in that meeting were really smart, don't you? I said, yeah, I think they had some really smart things to say. And he says, but now we've left the meeting. Do you know mm. what is going to happen next to get the movie made? Mm. I said, no. He said, then they're not smart. And I thought that was so interesting because, wow. you know, a lot of times you've just got to figure out with all this is what is the most important thing that needs to be done next? And is it going to help you make this movie? Yeah. And, um, and they, they didn't, they were just talking. And uh, so I thought that was, that was, that was really helpful. And, uh, and the other thing that was really helpful was just about self and self-expression and self ego was when I ended up working for Joel Silver, Ah, so there was a piece missing. So I went from John Singleton to Turner Pictures, which was a new studio oh. that Amy Pascal was running. I was wondering where Amy Pascal fit That's in. right. And so I worked for her for two, I worked for, I worked there for like a year and a half. And at some point I had convinced the studio to buy three action movies. So okay. I get a call from Channing Dungy, who at one point recently was the head of ABC. And now she's very high up in Netflix. Yes. And Channing at the time was a CE at Warner Brothers. And she said that, that uh, Warner Brothers was looking to bring in a VP of production to, for Joel Silver and someone that's going to find him some great action movies. And we just saw back to back, you were in the Daily Variety for buying action movies. Would you come over? I went over, I interviewed with Joel, you know, and I'm sitting in this, you know, he has this amazing office on the lot and it's got like the Predator uh, statue staring at you as you walk in. And then you go into his office and there's a button he would push, the door closes behind you and you're just like, you feel like you're in a dungeon and, you, and he's gonna just destroy you, which I've seen him verbally do to people. When I left, he offered me the job as I was driving home with one of those big cell phones. And then Amy Pascal called me and she said, no, I'm gonna counter, don't leave. 
um, and so then she countered, wow. and I was so I was so I mean so a year before that I had been driving to USC to eat and come home. Right. Then then uh, cut to a year later, I'm being offered a job that is three times more than the job that I was at at the point. So I think I was making like $30,000 working for Amy and they were offering me at least 90 to $110,000. And this is like 15, 20 years ago. And I was, I was the lowest, I was, I was a creative associate. So you go creative associate, creative executive, vice president, senior vice president, executive vice president, president. I was a creative associate. I was at the bottom. So now I was going to go work for Joel Silver and they were offering me a job to be the uh, vice president. So, Every, essentially being at the bottom, I was working for all of those people all the way up to president. Right. And now I was going to be a vice president of production. I would have two directors of development working for me and an assistant. Wow. And, and Amy now was going to counter and make me some sort of almost VP so she could keep me. And I'm driving down because I, I just left the Warner Brothers and all this is going on. So I'm driving you know, down one of the canyons you know, and I stop at this random gas station. I said, put 20 on pump two. And I got back in the car and kept driving. I didn't put gas in the car. I was, I was so, so in my head. So in your head. Wow. Um, then finally, when I got home, uh, I, I didn't have a lawyer. Amy gave me a lawyer. Then Amy called me and said, I've just come to my senses. You need to go work for Joel. Whoa. But I had just told Joel that I was going to go work for Amy. Wow. So then I had to call Joel back with no leverage and say, Amy says I should come work for you. He said, ha, ha, ha. All right, well, we'll make you a deal. But it wasn't the deal that he had promised the first time because he didn't have, I didn't have any leverage. Right. So uh, I remember I was butt naked in my, oh. in my bed with the covers up. Like, uh, like you see a lot of times in these movies where people, where women have been, you know, um, not taken care of. And, uh, and I felt like that. I had my, I, I literally looked at it. I said, oh my God, I'm, I'm, this is like a movie. I'm in my bed nude with the covers like at my neck and my fist balled up. I was just, you know, and so I, I, you know, two days later, I'm driving on a lot on Warner Brothers lot and I'm working for Joel Silver. And Wait, so who do you lean on during those moments? Like who did that's you- a good question. Um, you know, I had a great girlfriend at the time. Okay. I leaned on her. Um, it's a really good question. And, um, and I would call Dwight Williams, who was my first boss at, at, uh, at, um, at John Singleton's company. And, um, you know, but it was interesting because at the time I was really upset with Amy, yeah. but she said, you know, you're, you're creating, you're, you're treating your life like you're a spec script. You're not a spec script. I think she was also resentful that she was having to go back and forth between, you know, with Joel, who she didn't think very highly of at the time. Mm. And, um, and well, I, I think. Did you ask was, her why she wanted, she changed her mind about you working for Joel? Like what was her reason? So, yeah. So she, what the promises that she made, we were a new studio with, we were only, they were only around for like five or six years. But she would have had, she would have upset a lot of the executives that were there. And, uh, and I think ultimately, um, I get that. Yeah, I, I, I do too. And, you know, especially in hindsight, we all do. And then, um, so then I worked for Joel and then, um, uh, and then I was offered in, in Joel, you don't work for, for, but so long, but it was interesting because Joel, the thing I learned from Joel is Joel said, Damon, you are the king of activity. I need you to be the king of action. And I said, like, genre? He goes, no, no, no. He goes, you know, I need you to find a script and get it in front of a camera. Now, mm. you know, that's, that's a ton of heavy lifting. Right. But the point is, I was probably bringing in, because it was the days of the spec script, 
where you could set up a script um, that wasn't wasn't packaged. It didn't have a director. It didn't have any actors attached. And it was just a good idea. Um, or you could set up a good idea. I remember Liar Liar got set up then. So it was like the guys walked into Warner Brothers or wherever the studio was. They said, it's about a lawyer that can't lie. Love it. Eight months later, it got made. Conspiracy mm-hmm. theory. I was sitting in a room. Brian Helgeland walked in. He, he, he pitched this. He pitched conspiracy theory. And Brian Helgeland is one of the best writers I've ever been around. Best guys I've been around. And he pitched it. We bought it in the room. Eight weeks later, he delivered it. And then Eight by weeks. the end of the year, we were we made we made Conspiracy Theory. Wow. And if you look at the movie, I mean, it's an old movie now, but if you look at the movie, you can tell it's a first draft because there are things in there that you just go, ah, that could have been finessed better or that scene doesn't need to be there. But that's how fast it got made. And, uh, and that's how Joel liked it. And that's how Joel liked it. That's what he wanted. And so I couldn't, I, I did a little bit of it there. I mean, I set some things up. I was able to work with Al Goff and Miles Miller, who were former classmates of mine from USC. We did a movie called Double Tap together. Mm. And that script came in. It wasn't very good. I said to myself, I just said to my, I, I tried to think about like, Joel, like, how do I get this movie made? Which was always the thing that it didn't plague me. But like everyone said, this is how do you get it made? And I went to Al and Miles because they, they just were great idea guys. And they were able to see in the Double Tap what it could be. And, uh, and they rewrote it and and it got greenlit and the movie got made. So, and I think that, and also I learned that managing up is underrated and managing down is overrated. What do you mean by that? Well, the people that do really well in any business are able to manage up to their bosses. So it's like, what does my boss need? Right. He or she is told that they want to bring in more action movies, more ro- more rom-coms, more um, XYZ PDQ. Now you can be, if you're too busy managing down to your assistant, to your development executives, to whoever it is, and you're saying, hey, you know, we need to be thinking about this. And uh, I thought you did a good job writing those notes and, and that most of the time, the people that tend to do really well are, are better at managing up. I mean, they're managing up to their boss saying, that's what you want. And they spend the entire day, week, month, year, finding that project. And at the end of the day, that's all, that's all their boss really cares about. And, and that's obvious as everyone listening is going to be thinking, (laughs) but sometimes you get get caught up oftentimes because what we do in America is we want to say, especially in America, we'll, you know, like, you know, it's important to be mentoring, to manage down, to, to talk, to, to, to to, be a good leader, to be a good leader, to work with your team. But, but a lot of times it's like, not, you know, I would never discard that. I came from, I come from a family of two teachers and I think teaching is, mentoring is incredibly important, but you got to keep sight. The eyes on the prize is that your boss likes the job that you're doing. Does that make you a person that fits in a box a little bit too much? I get that. Yes. But it, but if you're in that situation, if that's the dynamic that's being set up, be careful about managing down your job is if you want to do, if you want to continue to move forward, your job is to manage up Mm. and utilize the people under you to help with that original goal, with that goal that your higher ups gave you essentially. Yeah. So like I would have, I had these two projects that were, I was working on that I knew my boss was going to love. I knew it. But um, he came in one day and he was like, so I need a list of five directors for a project, for some project that no executives were on, he was kind of doing. And so during the day, I pick up the phone and I call a director, I call a, an agent and say, oh, you know, da 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 and they'd give me a name. But then I'd start working on my two projects. Mm. Then I'd go back and he came in about halfway through the day and was like, hey, how are you doing on, on that list? I said, oh, you know, I'm getting there. And he was like, I need that list. And I never got him that list. Mm. Now. 
three weeks later, I pitched him this project that I'd been working on called Cooler by the Lake, and he loved it, and, he, and we almost got it made. But in the moment that we almost got it made, I'll never forget, he said, you, this is a great project. I'm glad you've been working on this. You should have got me that director's mm. list. And probably six weeks later, I was laid off. So did he lay me off? Did Michael Nason lay me off because I was a, I wasn't the executive that he thought I would be. I'm sure that was part of it. But also I, I, I didn't understand how important managing up was. Great advice. Well, it is now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's great advice. I mean, that's kind of what the whole point of mentorship is, is to give those that kind of advice to other people so they don't, you know. Yeah. It's, I mean, we learn more from like our supposed failures, right? Than our successes. Absolutely. All right. So what's next? So we went to Our Stories Films. How did that happen? So Our Stories Films was interesting because I worked for a woman. She's a, she's a really good person. Um, uh, Tracy Edmonds, um, really smart. She, she and I had met because she was uh, the producer on A Star is Born with her then husband, uh, Kenny Babyface Edmonds. Mm. And, uh, and so we kind of hooked up again at Our Stories Films. She hired me. Bob Johnson, the first black billionaire, was financing the company. I, my first day there, she said, well, here's the deal. Um, we just picked up a movie. I said, what do you mean you picked up a movie? Negative pickup? How does this work? She goes, no, no, no. We literally, someone came to us and said, there's a movie in production in South Carolina. It was in Aiken, South Carolina called Who's Your Caddy? And we, they're five days into production and they ran out of money. And Bob and I read the script and said, well, mm. we'll put in the rest of the money. It but literally we, picked it up. Barely picked it up. Wow. So she said, we need you to be in South Carolina tomorrow. So I flew out to South Carolina. And, uh, and luckily, the director was a guy I'd known before named Don Michael Paul. Great guy. And uh, Don, um, Don and I got along really well. I didn't get a, 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 a along as well with the producers that were there. But I'll never forget. So the movie was, it, it, so essentially, it's about these black guys that I, they, 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 I think they are taking over. They're they're taking over a golf course or something like that. And there were these dogs um, that they had that they were shooting these dogs all the time. And I kept being told, "We got to cut days. We got to cut pages." Blah blah blah. And I would say to Don, "Don, cut the dogs. Let's not deal with the dogs because the dogs were like the third weekend, and we were the second weekend. So it's like next week, let's just not shoot the dogs." And he was like, "What are you talking about?" And I said, "Black people don't find dogs cute or funny." And if this is a, uh, and I, I made black movies, I made white movies, blah, blah, blah. But in this case, you know, this I did do right, which is like, I know your audience. The first thing is who is going to be the audience that the movie is most likely going to appeal to. Yeah. And don't, don't shortchange them because so at, uh, my buddy at Screen Gems used to say like, they used to make these black movies where they'd have like four black people and one white friend. But they realized after a while, like nobody cares about that white friend. It's not going to bring white people into the movie, the yeah. one white friend. So you might as well make it five dynamic black people. Right. Well, the same thing goes for with Who's Your Caddy. It's like, black, don't put white, don't put dogs in there so that, you know, it's cute. Maybe you'll get some white people. First of all, guarantee that the black people are going to love this audience. I love this movie. Just yeah. like if you were making it for Asian people, make sure that the age, that there's something appealing, appealing, appealing for Asians, period. So I kept saying to him, like, we should cut the dogs. He didn't cut the dogs. Mm. And I'll never forget the first, the first cut of the movie. He called me beforehand. He says, yeah, you're not going to see one dog in this movie. We, <gasps> we showed it to some people and they said exactly what you said. And, you know, look, we figured a way around making yeah. the days and making the budget and being on schedule. So whatever. But right. it was interesting because if you watch Who's Your Caddy, which very few people did, there are no dogs in that movie. Very few. 
Huh. That reminded me of a question that I had actually that's a little bit different, but I think also relevant. I have a friend who is Asian. He's an actor. And he always says that he's always been told, and it's hopefully changing more, um, but he's always been told that like at a certain point, if you have more than one person who's Asian, it becomes an Asian show or mm. an Asian film. Mm-hmm. How do, what, how, what's the number for you think for black people? Like how many black people before people were like, eh, it's, it's a black it's a movie black now. film. Huh? I don't know because most times it's more about the, uh, the themes and the subject matter. So that's a really, really good point. That's a really good question. I don't know the answer. What I do know is that, you know, oftentimes black movies don't get the budgets that white movies get because they, quote, don't travel overseas. Now, there's a certain truth to the fact to the matter of the black movies will deal with what is what are African-American themes and storylines that don't necessarily translate overseas. So uh, the African-American experience of being enslaved, of institutionalized racism, as opposed to during the diaspora where the people were in the Caribbean, uh, that was more indentured servitude. So they would, those people oftentimes were able to buy themselves out of enslavement. And once they bought themselves out so early in the process of, of creating these countries, if you will, the stench of being enslaved wasn't on them. Whereas with African-Americans, we were enslaved for so long and then segregation yep. that, that we're still suffering from the slings and arrows of, of racism. Yep. And uh, so we are still discussing, we, we are still having movies that there are issues, race issues, things that we're discussing that don't translate internationally because they didn't have that sort of enslavement. So now, on the other hand, Will Smith and his former producing partner, I've heard them say things, James Lasseter, they'll say things like, well, we go overseas and we pound the pavement and we, we make sure that these people, they're like, no, we do want your movie. Now, but that's Will Smith. Yeah. Right? So I don't know. He would say, no, there's other reasons. Like a lot of black actors won't go overseas. I don't know if that's still the case. Yeah. And I, uh, But generally, internationally, you're going to get, a $30 million guarantee from uh, Europe for a $50 million movie or a $60 million movie. So you can make a bigger movie. Yeah. Right. You're not going to get that much money for, for an African-American theme movie. So you think more, it's more about the themes as opposed to like how many people are cast all the time or. I think so, but. Um, yeah. There's probably know. exceptions. I'm not going to, yeah. we're not going to say this is universal. I was just curious. You know, generally for a black, for a movie, when you put black people in it, it's like, it, it, it now, I have to think about that some more. And yeah, it's interesting, yeah. the Asian thing. I, I, I want to, I'd love to hear your friend talk more about that. Yeah, well, I could definitely hook that up. So, um, so you were, like you said, you had this like sort of almost meteor- meteoric rise, right? Yeah. So you went from vice president to then executive vice president. What was next? What's after well, that? I, well, I went to executive vice president at a production company. So Our Stories Films was, it was financed by um, Bob Johnson. So I was an executive vice president. I think he, he thought of Our Stories Films as a... Uh, as a studio, but ultimately once Who's Your Caddy came out and Bond, he pretty mm, much pulled out. So once he it. pulled out, I'm not sure what I did, but but Tracy and I did get back together after about a year and um, we got some money from YouTube and we did a movie called, and we did a company called All Right TV. Yeah. So All Right TV was a faith-based company in which we were making um, a lot of shorts and series that were online. Now, Early in my career, I should say I would. Uh, so somewhere in here, we didn't. I didn't include it, which is 
I had done a movie called Undercover Brother. So right, right, right. Let's talk my about partner and I at the time, his name was Michael Jenkinson. He had brought me in to help him take these online episodes or series and try to set them up as feature films. And to this day, we're still the only um, company uh, to start an animated series online yep. and turn it into a live action feature film, um, and, and which was Undercover Brother. And I, uh, I, I remember about three, within the last six or seven years on two occasions, I've walked by a conference room or walked into a room and heard my name or, or, my, or that company, which was Urban Entertainment, talked about as the only company to do it. And it was a really exciting time. We had, um, we were, what we would do is like send the animated, an episode of Undercover Brother animated online to the assistants because the assistants were the only ones at the time that could actually pull up uh, the animated series because their bosses didn't know how to go online, right? So wow. they would pull up, their, their bosses would come out of the offices and watch an episode. And we had four different studios um, trying to buy Undercover Brother, the animated series, wow. as a live action feature. The president of Universal at the time, I think was Scott Stuber, or maybe Scott that was an executive vice president. He's now the head of Netflix right. um, for a film. But he called me and said, we want this, we'll make it before everybody else. And I knew him, I trusted him. And so uh, we, we ended up at Universal and Universal made the movie. Um, and that, wow. that was a, that was for me, a movie that had my name on it. That was the fastest movie we ever made from beginning to end. And one of the biggest reasons is John Ridley. John Ridley is an mm. amazing writer. He came in, he had done the, the series online. He was also a feature film writer and we greenlit the first draft because he's just, I think John Ridley and Brian Helgeland are the two most talented writers I've ever worked with. Wow. I'm starting to sense that there's like, and I didn't realize, I realized this a little bit when I was researching you, but more and more so now, I and mean, a lot of your mentors, a lot of the people who kind of guided you in all this happen to be black, right? Yeah. It yeah. seems like that. Was yeah. that, you think, I mean, it's always like hindsight's always interesting, but like in looking back, how conscious of you was that? Like, is that something where you felt like more people were taking chances on you because I felt like, you know, they're, they're also black or is it one of those things where you wanted to make specific content and you were motivated to do that? And that's kind of where that fell. So that is such a great question. I've, I, I, I've never thought of that, thought of it that way before. So I wasn't consciously doing that, you know, what a great question. I think that I don't know. I mean, maybe some of it is that my people, black people saw how hard I was working yeah. and how hard I was hustling and, and would say when I would come off of MGM where I, where I didn't do a good job, like Michael Jenkinson was like, I know what you do well, mm. well come work for me. And, uh, and he saw me, you know, I, and it's like, it's so good to be seen. He saw me. Yeah. You know, I remember when I was on the Warner Brothers lot, there were security guards, black security guards that would always speak to me. And mm. when I was walking, when I was walking on the lot, they'd be like, why do you look so serious? Okay. Ease <laughs> up. You're going to be all right. But they also admired that I was out. I was just, I was just you focused. Were hustling. Yeah. I was hustling. And so, you know, I mean, look, Dean Daly gave me a fellowship at USC, which uh, I didn't even know what the hell a fellowship was. I was, I was in high school trying to get a scholarship to play soccer. And then all of a sudden I'm in graduated from Brandeis University and I get offered a fellowship and I was like, what's a fellowship? And, you know? So, yeah. so I mean, she really believed in me. And, and that story is that I was offered a spot at the, at USC Peter Stark program and I didn't have any money to, to pay for it. So I waited for Dean Daly to actually come back to her office one day. And I just said, 
can I talk to you for a minute? And I just never forget. She was like, do you have an appointment? And I was like, no. <laughs> she said, and you just showed up here in front of my office. Yep. And so we sat down and she was like, I'm really, this is really weird for me. Not just because you don't have an appointment. <laughs> she was not happy about that, but because she said, you look like Sydney Poitier, which when I was younger, I looked like Sydney Poitier. And she said, I just came from a lunch with Sydney Poitier in which he said, he made me commit to getting more African-Americans into the film school. Wow. So it's a little bit haunting when you say black people help me because Sydney Poitier didn't even know me, but indirectly Sydney Poitier was extremely helpful because she then told me to go meet with this, the head of the, I don't know, some department. And that woman said, you got into Peter Stark? And this one was black. I said, yes. She goes, you're in. I said, yes. She goes, I'll find you money. She says, I can't get black people into Peter Stark, so I'll find you money. And she got me a fellowship. Yeah. So your, your, your question, to answer your question basically is behind even behind most of my men, most, a lot of my mentors were African-American. I didn't look for them, no, yeah, but I, uh, uh, no, no. Cause it's a great question. I was like, huh, how did that happen? But a lot of times I think they saw me for who I was, which was much more raw than some of the white people that ended up hiring me, yeah. but they understood what I was going after and that I had some of the raw materials to get there. And so they helped me along the way. Mm. Sorry, just processing that. It's good. Yeah, no, please. I'm proud. It's just a great question. Thanks. I never, I mean, I never looked at all those mentors over yeah. time and saw the, saw the pattern. I was I'm like, holy shit. Well, I think it's important because, you know, how do I say this? Like, you know, we talk about, it's, first of all, diversity is coming up more and more, which is fantastic. And we're talking more and more about representation, both on camera, off camera, and all that is super important. And then you think, okay, what are, things we can do. So people mm. who are white can take more chances on people who aren't and they yeah. have to. And, and yeah. I, I mean, we could even talk about like the new rules that like the Academy is doing right now for, you know, inclusion and stuff like that. And what your thoughts on that. But I mean, there are things white people have to do because it's yeah. just a fact. Right. But then you think to yourself, well, how does anyone get up there? Right. People ask, well, there are people who are black, who are, you know, producers and you've got, you know, different people here and there. You've got your Will Smiths. So how did they do it? And so I just, I think about those things a lot. Like who, who gave the chances to the Will Smith and, you know, Quincy Jones, right? You know, that was one of his people, his mentors. So I just think about that a lot. Like how do we. Or the whole story about Denzel Washington and Chad Boswick. Exactly. Where Denzel gave uh, Chad a bunch of money early on. Um, and so Chad is here. And so it's interesting. And that was through Rashida Jones. Like uh, that was through, um, not Rashida, Felicia, uh, Felicia Rashad. Oh, did she? She's the oh, one who asked Denzel Washington for the money. And I think, mm -hmm. I mean, he helped more than just Chadwick, you know, it wasn't just like, you know, he funded a few people to go to Oxford for that trip. So it's know. like, I just think about that a lot where I'm like, you know, it's, it's important for all of us to do our part, but. We just also have that. to work, look at diversity in, in all of its, you know, people think of diversity, oh, we got, no, that means we're gonna have to hire black people. Sometimes it's like, look, man, just hire someone even from different socioeconomic, from a different, yeah. from, from the West Coast rather than the East Coast, from the mm -hmm. South rather than from the North, because all of it is going to help you be a better company, a Absolutely. better boss, a be, the, the better leader, because you're, you're then taking in, into account uh, more things. What else you got? Well, I mean, I could talk about this forever. Okay, so we keep going, right? So you started talking a little bit about RETV and your faith-based YouTube content, which was amazing, especially since like we kind of, 
sort of hinted at, it's super innovative, right? Because at that time, that wasn't really the thing. You didn't put content online as much as they think people do today. No, so, and that was interesting because that was a second phase. So we, I had done urban entertainment early right. on, probably after MGM, and, uh, and that worked. But, but a lot of times, people, that incubator system online, it just took too long and there'd be too many misses in terms of things. And you found yourself like putting money into it, uh, into an animated series. And then if it doesn't pan out online, there was no advertising. Mm. So that went, that went away. And then RITV, that was YouTube money trying to be more diverse, hire um, black people. They gave us a million dollars and we must have made 15 animated, 15 live action series in like three months. And we wow. worked with Issa Rae early in her career. Yes, um, I saw that. Did, uh, something called Church or something. Yep. Um, and it was great. And uh, that was actually, that was Tracy's idea. She knew how talented that woman is and was going to be. Wow. And uh, so then I, I don't know how things went, but you know, I can just jump to now, which is, you know, I think what's hard uh, uh, at being, at fi I'm 51 years of age. Uh, and it's, it's very difficult as, an independent producer who yeah. also would like to direct to find yourself looking for work to, you know, so like my next project is I have two projects coming up. One, I'm going to direct a movie of the week for lifetime. And the other one is a, um, which you've a had some good luck with if I, some very good luck. So, and then uh, the other that. one, so the other one is a, a project called ready or not, which is a fix. It's like a, it's a, it's, we call it a footloose remix which is this, um, I found out, you know, I read this article a few years ago that in 2013 in Georgia, they were still having segregated proms. And so the idea was, okay, well you take this and put it sort of in a footloose context. So we have a, an African-American girl who is, has a white dad um, and he loses his job and they end up having to move back to his hometown in Georgia, which he left because of all the uh, right. racial and social unrest yeah. and segregation. And he, so they're back there now and she goes, and you know, we're trying to set it today because we know that there are some segregated problems still going on. I'm and sure. the idea is that she ends up, she ends up going from California where, you know, it's sort of like do anything, be anything you want to yeah. be to like these very stringent old school norms and rules. And um, so she says, no, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to like Kevin Bacon. He says, we're going to dance. She says, we're going to dance at the prom together, blacks and whites together. And, uh, and she does. And so it's very kind of a Disney-esque movie. Um, but that's going to come in. And I think we're going to be able to set that up. And then uh, I'm hoping to direct this uh, Lifetime Movie of the Week. And the one thing I can say is that I do believe that you know, hustling uh, and the best version of hustle, which is just, you know, you get out um, of college or grad school and, you know, if you want to be something or do something, you really just, you know, like go and, and, and do it. And if it means that you got to sleep on someone's couch, you do it. Now that comes naturally to a lot of people, right? The one that's not so natural is when you're my age now at 51 with broad shoulders and brown skin and a deep voice is walking into these rooms and trying to figure out how how to feel fresh and almost new to people, to younger people without undermining mm. some of the wisdom and insight that you've gained. So like, you know, when I, it used to be that I'd say minimize self to maximize opportunity. So mm. uh, when I was younger, I was still have an athletic build and would go into rooms and with Brian Grazer and a lot of other great producers that are tiny guys with all due respect. And I would look very big. So I said, okay, just try to minimize yourself in this mm -hmm. space. Um, don't talk a lot and try to make these men feel comfortable, quite yeah. frankly, um, and to maximize the opportunity that it is to be in this room without 
undermining who you are and what you are. Right. Okay. And sometimes it, a lot of times it works. Now at 51, I've had to say to myself, it's kind of like I had this thing now 51, 23, because it's like, all right, don't undermine the, all of the information that you stored away and the great stories that have helped you, you know, understand like how to be great, how to be good at your job. But at the same time, you got to get back to that 23 year old, which is going, which was willing to drive down to uh, USC to eat and then come back to work. Right. So you got to find that sweet spot between 51 and 23. So I call it my 51, 23 thing. I'm always trying to figure out these mantras, um, like you know, and I, I can tell you that the, the, the most successful men that I meet over 45, their best quality without a doubt is curiosity. And that's, what's great about having gone to Brandeis university, because that's where I met the most curious people, both in terms of staff, uh, both in terms of teachers and in terms of students It's like, just about being curious and not being afraid to ask the question. And um, because you're just going to, no matter how ignorant you may seem, you're going to learn. Mm -hmm. And so I find like Quincy Jones, I remember meeting Quincy Jones years and years ago. And uh, that was his greatest quality. Like he was, he was asking about the internet when people were still calling it like, well, the, the super highway they used to call it. <laughs> and he would, and he was, he was hiring people to come over to his house and teach him how to get online. Mm -hmm. And then whatever the next thing was, he was learning about it. And so you just have to stay curious as you get older and that will keep you young. That will keep you informed and that will keep you moving forward as opposed to being stagnant. That's my opinion. Again, just processing. Yeah, no, I don't blame you. So now obviously you're in this independent film making at stage of your life, right? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to just ask obviously about some of the, the big films, right? So obsessed, can you tell me a little bit about how obsessed came to you? Yeah. So I was, I was reading an article about Clint Culpepper at screen gems and the types of movies he's looking for. And I was just thinking about it. Okay. So good research. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, he's looking for these types of movies. He's looking for these types of movies. And then I remembered this idea I had to do a black version of fatal attraction. Mm -hmm. And I wrote him a very, um, one thing that and it's like, I wasn't the executive at MGM that I wanted to be, but I, I'm all of my people that I've worked for and with, um, will say that like, I'm, I, I, I sometimes write these like five sentences, which is like black fatal attraction couple meets this white woman. This happens, this happens. Here's why it's going to be so great. And he literally called me after he got my email and said, come meet with me. And so we met at some restaurant and I pitched it to him again. And he was like, that's brilliant. All right, let's do it. And then, then was the craziest things happen. It was like, I got a writer. We did it. We did a treatment. And like, I hadn't really pitched him beat for beat how it was going to go. And at some point, uh, I said, okay, well, why don't we have them go to Jamaica for a little bit for mm. something and then come back. And when Clint saw that in the, uh, treatment, he called me and says, Oh, you want to make this for $30 million. I'm not doing that. I'm not working on this project anymore. So he just like said, he just wasn't that quick, that quick. So then I thought the project was dead, uh, was languishing at best. And I was at a dinner party. Just and curious, what, what do you think, what budget do you think he was probably imagining for it? He told me he was trying to make like a three to $5 million, oh, you know, uh, black movie. And I, and I, and I remember saying to him, I said, it's a it's a piece of business as they like to say, I don't, that's fine. And he was like, no, no, no. I know what you're trying to do. Now, was he trying to bring his, his, uh, Will Packer in because he, he and Will Packer are really tight. I don't know. I don't think so. But I, I, I don't know what the, I, I don't know to this day what game he was playing. Mm. But then he, uh, he, what happened? Oh, so I'm, uh, so like, I don't know, maybe a year later, 
kind of forgotten about the project, I get a call. This is, I think this is a really good story. I get a call from, I know my wife and I are at a dinner party. At the dinner party is an executive who says to me, isn't this great that we're going to make um, obsessed with Beyonce? I said, this is fantastic. I had no idea that's what was going on. And so, um, how did that come about? And how did you I have no know? idea yeah. to this day? I have no idea. So the point is, wow. he had been developing it behind my back, as far as I know, and uh, and had gotten Beyonce on board. So I called my lawyer. And I said, I think you got to get into this. I don't know what's going on. It's about to get made. So he then claimed that he had he bought the project to me, uh, which I didn't know. Which I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know how he was trying to say that I, I wasn't involved or didn't didn't deserve any any money from me from the movie. So we wow. again uh, the one another piece of advice I would say is Always pay is, is 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 hire a lawyer. Meaning yeah. like a lot of times a lawyer, if you're a little bit friendly with them, they'll say I'll do this one for free. Or yeah, there's a haircut at the five percent that they take. But my lawyer had done such a good job with the original contract where. He had said, if the movie is made for X, Damon gets paid, and I'll tell you, $50,000. If the movie is made for Y, he gets paid $300,000. I was never, I don't, I don't even think I knew that was in the contract, but mm. great job, Stephen Clark. I'll give him a shout yes. out. And he, and so when, uh, so all this was going down, I had to hire a separate lawyer to, to threaten to sue. And it's the worst thing in Hollywood to be someone that it's a sue because then they call you, you're a litigious person. So I did not want to do it. But at the same time, he was marching. No, forward. he was going, he was going around you. Beyonce was going to be in the movie and she had committed to it. And I was like, God, so she, so then, uh, ultimately the writer called me and I'm going to say his name because I, because I thought he did it a very classic, classy, classy thing. One of the classiest things I've ever seen a, a writer do or a human being doing. He called me and he said, Damon, I'm going to get on the phone with the Sony lawyers today in a couple of hours. I need you to know that since I wrote the treatment for Obsessed, I worked, uh, Clint has hired me for three other projects and I'm making really good money for the first time in my life. So this conversation that I'm about to have with the Sony lawyers where they're going to ask me questions about Clint it's going to be very difficult for me to be as absolutely transparent and honest as I can be. I get it. And I told him, I get it. And I really appreciate this call. Yeah. It was just great. I mean, especially you know, when I was younger, I thought everybody would do that, but you get yeah. older and very few people will actually be that honest about where they are in their lives and why they have to say or do certain things. And I, yeah. Rob Attitui, amazing. So three hours later, I knew he was on the call. So I think he was on the call, let's say at one o'clock. My phone rings and it's Rob at like 1.30. And I, and I pick up the phone, I'm like, Rob, uh, that was really fast. <laughs> and Rob says, well, <laughs> you're gonna be happy. And I said, well, why? He said, because I got on the phone, the Sony Pictures lawyers said, quote, okay, Rob, let's start with the easy questions and then we'll get to the harder ones. Tell us about when, when after uh, Clint gave you and Damon, the idea for Obsessed, oh. what happened? And, you know, Rob said to me, in that moment, I thought, oh, I can't answer this any other way. I, Clint is filling my pockets with money right now. But wait, Damon brought this movie to me. There you go. And they were like, what? Well, did Damon bring this movie to you after Clint brought it to you? He said, no, Damon brought it to Clint. And he had this way that he knew that wow. I had brought it to Clint that I didn't even knew he knew. And he said, and then Clint asked Damon, who would be the best writer for it? And, and Damon chose me. Yeah. And they were like, so and they, they said, 
Okay. Well, Rob, thanks. Bye. <laughs> and about oh my six God. weeks later, I got a check for $300,000. $300,000. Wow. But I wasn't on set for one minute. And, and, so they really and just they, cut you out. They cut me out. And here's the thing. To do it again, I would try to get on set and take less money because the problem with, with the movie, with the movie business, this isn't anyone in the, it's like, you're only as good as your last movie, you know? Mm -hmm. And that movie was everything about that movie was, was me. And you know, I mean, I have a white wife. I I've seen how people react to that. I seen, I understand like how the biz, how, how things have changed since Michael Douglas was in central park with his mistress thinking, maybe I'll marry you and just hanging out. And nowadays, that's that you know we are so much more chaste, so much more religious, so much more like you know against things like that than we were in the '80s. That like you couldn't have that. So I was always talking about like, okay, what can they do, and and how much talking about your audience. Your audience is going to be African American women, so they need to know that they're not going to walk into a theater and watch some black man have an affair with a white woman. But and she needs to be coming onto him, and he needs to go to his wife and say, "Help me," right. because. African American women say, "I will help you, husband." Yeah, came to me, right? And, and and I made sure that was the case. I mean, my I was all over the movie, but I wasn't on the set one day mm. and didn't get the credit for it, for being on the set one day, and and that cost me, you know. So what what would be better to have the three hundred thousand dollars? I took half of that and put it in my savings for my sons right. for for their five twenty nine, or would it have been better to be on set and maybe from there that would have launched Propelled another part more. of my career? Yeah, I don't know. But also, I mean, you would have you would have been maybe in conflict on set with uh, whatever it was that, that cut you out, Clint. Yeah. So I mean, that might not have been. And that might have been detrimental to my, um, you know, um, um, emotional uh, health. So. And maybe your know. career, for all my we know, career. like you know, yeah. you already you already you know were trying to avoid being called litigious. Like, yes. there might have been something else that he would have had to make you do. I don't know. So that's a great point. Um. Okay. So then this Christmas. Oh, this Christmas is simple. So this Christmas was a project that Preston Whitmore, he, he loved. He was a writer-director. Preston did a great job. Um, we're, we were, the interesting thing about Preston was when, uh, when my brother and I first came to Hollywood, my brother was an actor. I wanted to be a um, producer, director. And um, Preston wanted my brother in his movie. And Preston said, I'm going to put you in the movie. And then my brother that we didn't just get, didn't get any roles and he got like a one day stint and they cut him mm. from the final picture. My brother went to the premiere and wasn't in it at all. My brother was heartbroken. Yeah. And I remember he came back to our apartment and he was so heartbroken. And we just said, never going to, if we ever see Preston Whitmore, it's going to be a problem, blah, blah, blah. But over time I realized like directors fall in love with certain actors and want to work with them, but it's not always, they can't always, find a way to do it. It's going to be yeah. the studio that has to agree. And my brother didn't have the credits to be starring in that movie, but Preston loved him. And what should have happened is if we knew the business better, it should have been like, Hey, Preston really likes me. I need to stick around around Preston so that, you know, over time he's going to get me movies. We didn't know that. So yeah. by the time rolled around that Preston and I were, were put together to make this Christmas, Preston called me and said, you know, I know the studio wants us to work together, but I think you hate me because of how I handle things with your brother. And I said, yeah, I used to, but then I grew up and I understand how the business works. And I appreciate that you really liked my brother and wanted to put it. And that you're even bringing it up right now. Yeah. 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 And that was great. I mean, and tell me you were able to put uh, your brother in, in this Christmas. No, I did put him in conspiracy theory and I put him in a couple of things I worked on, but uh, I don't know where he was during this Christmas, but uh, 
I was. That would be a good story for Preston to be. Like, yeah, no, it would be good. No, but we. It, funny thing is, we didn't even. We never talked about putting him in, in this Christmas. We most of the time we talked about how to deal with the studio, and and he just always had this vision of African Americans needing their own Christmas movie. Mm. I mean, since then there are there are some studios that all they do is look for Christmas movies and then also black Christmas movies. So Preston Whitmore was a genius. It's a great movie. You know, he he really knew before everybody else that why this movie was going to be so great. I mean, that movie will make money forever. I don't think, I don't know if he's got back end, but yeah, man, it comes up every Christmas. I feel Every like. Christmas. That's why people look for Christmas movies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, it's true. Actually. It makes sense. Great cast. Any, any stories yeah, about fantastic cast. casting that? Yeah. So there was, but Chris, um, what's his name? Rihanna's ex-boyfriend's in that movie. No, Chris I can't Brown. say I have any good Chris casting. Brown. Yeah, Chris Silva. Brown's a, Loretta Devine. Did you Chris, know Loretta went to Brandis? I did not. I did for a second. Now, do you say it? it sounds familiar. Better. No, I didn't know that. I think I had a hand in casting Idris because one of the interesting things about actors is the British actors tend to just work. They don't get caught up in, well, how is this going to be for my career mm. work? And I said to Clint when we were casting, I said, what about that guy, Idris Elba, who at that time was that guy, Idris Elba, not Idris. Well, she has, what, what, he, I mean, this was after Obsessed, right? Yeah, yeah. He was so obsessed. I said, why don't we go back to that? And he was like, well, I said, yeah, he'll do it again. He'll mm. do another one with us because they just work. And uh, whereas American actors are much more picky about what they do, uh, they'll, you know, uh, they'll do five that don't mean anything and then two that are huge. I mean, Denzel kind of takes that on with the way Doesn't that he'll Doesn't he say do. one for me, one for them? That's right. That's right. So Denzel has a version of that. Huge Denzel fan. So just, yeah. Yeah, so that was, such that a was, stalker. I was impressed you went to that right away. Look at you. I think my mom's favorite actor. I feel like I've seen so many of his movies, but that's, yeah. a, that's a really good one. One for me, one for them. It's, it's yeah. easy. It's memorable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk. Let's talk about Taken from Me. Taken from Me was um, was such an amazing experience. So you and I have a mutual friend and friend in Stan Brooks, and his wife yes. is Tanya Lopez. He was our Ray. mentor number one. He was our first episode mentor, and and he's really awesome, and his wife is is amazing. And I don't. How does it work? I think she called me and said, "I've got this book." And well, let's just book- preface this because we didn't mention this in his episode. So his wife is the head of Lifetime, right? Right. Her, so yeah, Tanya Lopez used to be an agent. Um, right years and years ago. And then she went over to Lifetime and she's ascended. She got there at a pretty high level and she's ascended to even higher. But she, she called me, she says she's got this book. And she said, um, you know, I'd like for you to um, come on uh, to the book and find me a writer and, and make it into a movie of the week. I'd never done a movie of the week before. And I went and got this woman who was a former feature film executive, black woman named Elizabeth Hunter. And she had now been writing television. And so she understood television structure, act breaks. And so she wrote a draft and the studio was great. One of the interesting things I find about African-Americans versus white people, I don't know how to say it differently, but we are, um, I was telling a friend today, like, you know, there aren't a lot of different, most people only have one sense of humor, you know, so like sarcasm or broad comedy. Uh, So African-Americans tend to have a, you know, we really enjoy broad comedy. With that, we also are very direct. And so when you're managing, you- when you're managing African Americans, such as myself, I think I, I always work better with people that are direct. So, you know, when people are passive aggressive, they say, Hey, Damon, you should consider John so-and-so as a DP. I'm like, yeah, okay. Well, I'll consider him maybe at some point. That's a maybe to me. Yeah. But for a lot of people, they understand, like, I need to go and investigate this person. So Tanya and I got along really well because she's very direct. She would, you know, she calls, I want you on this, uh, on this mm-hmm. book. You're going to adapt it. 
uh, you, you know, we're going to pay this amount for a writer. Go, go. And that, I'm very good with that. I went and got Elizabeth Hunter. So you're now um, a man of action, right? Like, well, yeah, now I'm a man of action. With, right? with, it's interesting, you know, because the, I had some harsh mentors at times, but what they said was, was spot on. And the big thing was we went and got, we got Jill Scott and, mm-hmm. and she was great. And I got a call from, from Stephen Balka at, at, uh, at the time working at Lifetime. Great guy, great executive. And he said, you know, Damon, we're look, we've looked at the movie. We think you did a good job. It's going to do okay the opening weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, you know, it might trail off. But, uh, you know, on TV, it's going to be shown and over and over again. I was like, okay, great. But I don't, I don't know. So I got off the phone. I started thinking about it. And I ended up writing this really long email to Tanya and I just said, I just don't think you understand, your people understand the Jill Scott audience. And I mm. went over who she is, her, how, you know, how many records she sold, how many people, you know, the different vlogs that had been written about how amazing she is and just a, a bunch of different things. And I, and, I, and I just put it on the line. I, I sent it to her the day before the, it, it aired and it aired and did amazing. And Tanya called me and said, I forwarded your email to marketing because I said, you missed this. He got this. And I, I just so admire the fact that she, she not only did it, but she called me and told me she did it. So I, I love working with Tanya. And we went on to make a movie called Taken From Me where she called me and said, okay, I've got another movie for you. You can't, I don't need you on set. I got a guy already and I can't give you producing credit, but it's a movie about a black woman that goes to Korea to get her son because what happened is she was married to this Korean guy. They got divorced. They had a kid. The Korean guy took his son back to Korea so that he didn't have to deal with his, his black wife. She, you know, she literally like paints her body. Like, so she looks Korean and she, uh, or, you know, and she gets her kid. She said, the problem is, is that Tanya was like, it feels like a generic kidnapping movie. Mm. There's no, and I said, Oh, you want me to make this more black? And she goes, well, no, yes, no. And I said, Gosh, all right. And, and that's yeah. one of the, that's, and, and, and she said in a classy way, I yeah, understood yeah, yeah. what's going on. I, know, I get it. And I ended up, um, I ended up rewriting it with another writer and we just put, you know, I said, you know, African-American, we're very uh, faith-based. And uh, so we put prayer in, we put what's called prayer warriors in the movie. And we did a number of other things that were just culturally significant that we didn't do anything in terms of socioeconomics. And it did really well. The script that came in, they greenlit. I'm embarrassed to say they begged me to go to Taraji Henson for the lead. And I was the one saying, Taraji's not going to do this movie. She just did a movie in China. So it might feel the same karate kid, something or other. Yep, and so casting director at Lifetime at, at, at Lifetime at the time, I don't know if she's still there. She called me and was like, what are you saying? You know, you're going to go out to her. And I said, uh, you know, uh, I said, why don't you? And she called and she got Taraji Henson. So she always gets to gets. So I always say like, you, you know, they you believe credit where credit. Yeah, due. I give credit where credit is due. And so, um, both movies ended up getting NAACP awards and doing really well. I'm really proud of that. And Taraji B. Henson, I think, was nominated for an Emmy? She was nominated for an Emmy. That's right. She got an NAACP award, nominated for an Emmy. Jill Scott got an NAACP award. And Sins of the Mother also got its own like original movie of the week NAACP award. And when did you get yours? I got mine for Sins of the Mother. Right. with uh, So that, that got its own NAACP award, which was great. A lot um, to go around. Got to take my mom, which was really cool. So, Aww. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. You made me reflect on a lot of things that, are, that can help me tomorrow. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate <laughs> so thank that. You. Thank Perfect. you. Have a great thank day. Thank you so much.
All right. I hope you loved that episode as much as I did. I wanted to read a quick review from Allie Cleveland titled First Class from Top to Bottom. Michelle's podcast has been a fantastic resource to access so much wisdom and shared experience from industry veterans who speak the truth. I drive 40 minutes each way, each way to my teaching job, and these episodes have been an enriching way to build momentum for my career as I dial in my focus. The clues to success are here in spades. Another mentor I appreciate, Chris Cummings, taught me the saying, fish where the fish are. This pond is well stocked. Listen and learn. Thank you, Allie Cleveland. I appreciate the review. And if you want a chance for your review to be read aloud, if you haven't already, please write a review on Apple Podcasts, rate and review and subscribe and uh, check out all the episodes. And thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend you know would love it. Let me know what you learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram, at Mentors on the Mic. I will be sharing even more information about our mentors there. These are crazy times, and now more than ever, it's so important to connect. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating on iTunes. Every week I'm choosing a review to read on an episode. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. Thanks. Thanks.